Well, welcome along to the next instalment of Tom Deacon, Deacon Strucks. Uh, great to have you on board for another episode. This is the podcast where I aim to delve that little bit deeper to find out what makes my guests tick and do what they do. Thank you so much for all of your feedback on my last episode with Gordon Strachan featuring James Beattie. I'm glad that you took a lot from it and um, I'm kind of were surprised and impressed with how honest and open Gordon was. So um, if you have time and you haven't already gone back to check it out, make sure you do that. And, and also while you're there, if you have time, perhaps you can help me out and give it a review or at the very least uh, to help you out subscribe and that way you won't miss out on any future episode. Right then to today's guest. Well, he's a retired French professional mixed martial artist, kickboxer and film actor, a professional MMA competitor from 1990 until 2014. He competed for UFC, Cage Rage and King of the Cage. However, that only begins to scratch the surface of who Jess is. Today, I chat with him about the challenges of being an actor, how he got into UFC and most importantly, to understand Jess and what keeps him going, what drives him. My guest today is Jess Liodin, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast. Jess, great to have you. Uh, thank you for getting in touch at all. You know, I appreciate it. You know, is uh, I've been doing a lot of those recently, but it's always good to talk to different people and to a different audience. So I appreciate the fact that you got in touch. Yeah, uh, well, man, uh, just looking at your story and trying to um, shine a light on it and, uh, and and put it out there. I mean, I, I'm already looking online and I, I see your story has been told many times, but, um, mm-hmm. but years go on and I, and I kind of wanted to understand where your, your, your head was at now with everything. So um, I have to say a compliment to you. Uh, you are the most organized person for replying to emails. Uh, I get the feeling that if, if Jess says he will be there, and at a certain time, you're a man of your word. Is, is that true of you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to be on, I mean, that's probably because of the movie business. You know, you don't want to be missing any opportunity when you've got a casting director or coordinator that contact you. You've got to be on the board and reply straight away um, and being available and be professional. But I suppose I was also like that in fighting as well. I remember some... Um, promoter back in the old school of MMA people like um, Lee Asdell, for example, that was doing some of the first MMA show in the UK. And he said to someone one time, and that person repeated to me, he said, if one guy's going to make it, it's Jess. Because every time I ask for fighters to send tape of themselves and try to sell them in promotion in Japan, he's always the first one to reply. He's got tape ready. He's ready to go. When the other one are like, oh, we'll see maybe next week if I've got time. So I suppose I've always been like that. Yeah, uh, but it's it's a good it's a good trait to have, but it goes against the idea of you being the Joker. That's your your nickname. Do, do people always take you so seriously, or or is there that fun element to you? Uh, I think that when you get to know me, you see the fun element of me. Uh, that, that actually that nickname because I know that a lot of fighters actually give themselves nicknames. Uh, that nickname was given to me by a, a commentator called Stephen Quadro. He was doing a love event back in the days. He was doing Pride. And he was um, doing a cage rage. And uh, obviously, he got to know me behind the, the scene. And uh, one time, he called me like that, a joker, because he said, when we're behind the scene, you're always joking, making jokes, and so on and so forth. But when it's time to go, you're ready to go. And you're kind of like very focused and very aggressive. And then the name stuck. Well, it's a, it's a great name to have. And um, 
you know, where to start with your story, Jess? Uh, I kept looking at this. I was thinking, where do we start to, to see where you get to and where you came from? I suppose I want to know right now, uh, where are you at in your life now, Jess? I'm very happy. I'm very happy. And I'm like 46, going on 47. Uh, I uh, done everything I wanted to do in martial art. Even I, I even done a lot more than what I expected or, or even dreamed of doing. Um, I moved on from it. Obviously, initially it was quite difficult because um, fighting become your identity, and everybody sees you as just a fighter. And when you start saying to them, "Well, actually, I retired," people start look at you funny. Um, I always said it before, it's very strange, but I, I suppose it's a fighter perception, but it's, it's as if someone just chopped your bollocks off. You know what I mean? Now they see you as being human. Yeah. But it's like in their eyes, it's like they see you and they say, oh, okay, that means I can beat you up now. It's not what people think, but as a fighter and we all got ego, um, that's how you see it. So that was very hard for me to detach myself from this. But when the movie business started picking up, um, that kind of got me going and I was very focused on that. And that made me forget about fighting. Now, even today, a lot of people are still saying to me, listen, Jess, I'm, I'm sure you still got one more in the bag. You know, I'm sure you can fight again. Uh, and I do train with still active fighter, fighter that fight in UFC, fighter that fight in Bellator. But there's a big difference between fighting and training. I can still do very well at training, but fighting is a whole different ball game. You have to go through an eight, 12 weeks training camp, and I don't think my body will be able to take it anymore. Mm, but it's, it's, it's the mental challenge. I mean, you say you're happy now, you, you achieved everything you wanted to do in martial arts, but I guess you're still fighting, but in, but in a different way. You're, acting is not easy. There's the auditions, there's the, the mental capacity that you have to sit and wait until the right role comes along for you. So I suppose you're, you're still fighting, but, but new challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's completely different. Obviously, that's the mentality I had when I got into fighting. Uh, sorry, into acting. Uh, and that's why from the beginning, I started from the bottom. I started as an extra, I was doing short film, wine liner, and I walked my way up. Because I thought if I do that, people would respect me for it. And, and that's the way to go. But that's not really how it works. You know, in, in fighting, if you start as an amateur and, and there is a, a clear progression, you then become semi-professional, then professional, then you start fighting guys like you, then journeyman. There's a complete progression that you can see is very clear. In a movie business, it's not like that. In a movie business, it's mainly about who you know. Ultimately, in a, in a fighting business, it's the same. If you have good coach, you've got a good relationship with promoter, obviously, you're going to have a better transition you're going to have a much better fighting career compared to others. Uh, but you still can do pretty well just by yourself if you're just good enough. In acting, it's not like that. You have to know the right people. You have to be connected to the right people. And I think now more than ever, uh, there were a time in the UK when it wasn't so much like that. It was still, but not so much. But in the recent few years now, we're becoming the, the movie business here, I believe, became more and more Americanized because of all the big blockbusters shooting here. And now if, you're not, if you don't have the right connection, if you're not with the right group, it's, it's becoming harder and harder. Mm. I mean, you've mentioned in, in previous interviews that, that I've read, it's about having the right agent. But from my own personal experience of, of turning up to auditions, they're the most, um, I wouldn't say terrifying, but they are the most challenging things to be self-aware, to try and have a good thick skin when you come out of that room and you know, as soon as you walk in, you weren't right for that part. It's, it's, it's draining uh, emotionally, I guess. How, how do you find that? 
I, I never had a problem with uh, doing audition. I, I know a lot of people finding find it nerve wracking, but trust me, when you're in a twenty thousand people arena and you got a, a killer right in front of you that want to rip your head off, <laughs> that's nerve wracking. You know, going to an audition is is nothing. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons, but the other reason is. Um, because I don't work that much, uh, for me, it's an opportunity to do a performance so, and to do what I like. So it's like going on stage. I'm like, okay, I learned my lines and I'm not thinking so much about am I going to get a job or not. Right now, what I'm thinking is, hey, I'm going to do a performance. And I'm going to have fun with that. So, you know, for me, it's never been nerve-wracking. Obviously, you want to do well. And I fucked up so many auditions in the past because I wasn't, sometimes I wasn't ready for it. Sometimes I was just focusing more or I've learned all my dialogue and, and I've got to make sure I say my dialogue. And I would say it too fast and it wasn't very good. I remember doing an audition for James Bond and it was terrible. I remember also, um, and you learn. You learn sometimes you also, it's your audition. So you have to go in there and ask questions. Don't be shy to ask, to ask questions. You know? And I, I messed up audition sometimes because I didn't ask the right question to the casting director. So now I've learned from all of this. But it's never been very nerve-wracking in all honesty. I don't do that many auditions and I'm just surprised how many jobs I managed to get with the very little audition I ever done. I think the maximum audition I ever had was like five years and that was a good year. Like last year, I'm having just one audition. So I'm not one of those cats that get a lot of audition, unfortunately. But I kind of find a way to get myself on set to talk to the right people. I did okay so far, but obviously, as I said, the last few years have been very difficult as an actor, and that's why I slight, slowly transitioning transition to stunts, because for me, it's still you're still performing, you're still on set, there's still some sort of acting element, and I do enjoy it, even so I would rather work as an actor. Yeah, I, I guess you have to diversify and... Um employment's employment and as long as you're enjoying what you do i can't imagine though jess uh, you're standing around on set with lots of other actors that you wouldn't stand out a little bit for your physique <laughs> so um <laughs> you're able I to do. network yeah i do yeah i don't but that's another thing you see i remember like because i've been doing this for about 10 years now so uh 10 years ago when i would go for an audition it would already see already obviously be for the same thing you know the tough guy the henchman mm. the thug whatever you want and I would go in a room and eh, you would have a couple of guys that look like East End guys and they look kind of legit, but they're not very big. And then you would have a couple of guys that kind of big-ish, but a bit stuff, you know, not looking great. Then you would have the actor that just want to become the De Niro and pretending to be that. And you would have a couple of bodybuilders. So when you see the people in the room, you're like, okay, I've got a chance. But at the end of the day, it's going to be dented acting. Now it's different. Now when you go in a room, the room is full of six foot five guys because the industry has changed a lot. Now there's a lot more big guy. There's a lot more bodybuilder. There's a lot more agency. So now as much as a man look intimidating to some people, in my own screen, it works. But when I get in a room and you're surrounded by six foot, six foot five guys, mm. you kind of disappear behind them, you know? And you still think, well, it might just be down to the acting. But realistically, those roles, they don't have that many lines. They don't have that many things to do. And even if it doesn't work, they chop the line off. They cut it off. They might kind of make it work. So um, that's the problem. So now I'm stuck with playing those kind of roles, physical roles. And I can see my agent send me to that. But when you get in that room, I mean, 
the last time I did an audition like that was for The Gentleman, for Guy Ritchie. Yeah. And they made me audition for a role, a part called, um, I think it was called Rabbit, or something like that. Anyway, uh, I could see when I read the script that that's a very big guy. That's not me. Obviously, I'm a good, I've got a good physique, but I'm not that impressive. So what I did is I took the audition and I played every single part in the, in, in the scene. So I changed the camera angle, I changed my clothes, I, I, I played differently. So I had fun with it. I sent it and they said, nah, you can't do that. You just have to only audition for that big guy. So I auditioned for it. I knew I wasn't going to get it. And at the end of it, what, who they got? They got a, a quite big black guy who must be about six foot five. And that's what I expected. Yeah, I, I love that though, Jess. You're, you're creating a new way. I mean, normally when you get an audition, you have to play that character. But I like the fact that you diversified and went, no, I'll play all of them and show how, how skillful I am. You, you don't often get to do that uh, when you're acting. No, no, no. But for me, I thought, okay, that's an opportunity to get in there. And if maybe Guy Ritchie, whoever going to pick, it might see me playing something else and say, oh, hold on a minute. Because we all heard those stories, isn't it? When, yeah. when, when you get... Um, when you become a very big film fan and you start watching a lot of movies, making of, reading a lot of books, you heard so many stories of different actors that got to where they are in different ways. The thing is now the industry is different. Look back in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't that hard realistically for an actor or director to talk to a studio executive or to, to talk to someone who's got some sort of importance and can push career. Obviously, you had to know the right people, but, you know, you had that phrase, oh, let's have lunch. You know, that, that could happen. I mean, the biggest story of all is Van Damme doing a high kick over the head of, of Gollum. And the next week, the next day, he got a meeting in Gollum with Cannons and he got signed up to do Bloodsport. Obviously, that's a bit excessive, but those things did happen. Today, you can't do that. In between you, the actor, and the actual people that make the decision from the director to executive, there's about two dozen people they are only here for themselves and their career. And if you're not going to add anything to them to their career, they're not going to get there. You go through. Now that you understand that, does that give you solace in the fact that um, you're able to to be more selective when an audition comes up? You just have fun and enjoy it, or, or does it kind of annoy you that that's the situation? Oh yeah, it annoys me. It annoys me tremendously. I mean, as I said, it's not just me. Obviously, I talk about me because I'm, I'm quite specific, but uh, I, uh, I just bought a house and uh, the lady that showed me the house, she happened to be an actress. So I was talking to her, very pretty little English girl, the kind of actress you would see on downtown Abbey. Um, she's classically trained. She's classically trained also. She can dance, she can sing. So I said to her, wow, you must be doing a lot of auditions. So I said to her, how many auditions do you do? She was like, eh, about four or five a year. So it's the same as me. So it's just not only me, it's, it's everybody. You know, a muscle actor that I'm speaking to, they're in the same boat as me. If you don't, if you're not signed up to those big agencies, you're not going anywhere, basically. You know, there were a time when actor can still pick up a few good roles on Spotlight, but it's not like that anymore. You got the big casting director, they only work with a handful of agencies. They don't need to go through hundreds of people for audition. They know with those few agencies they're gonna find what they need. Also, it creates a good relationship between them. And, and myself, so maybe in the near future, they might just, hey, is your big actor interested in that project or that project? So we create that relationship. So it's pretty bit narrow-minded. And you also got those uh, agents here in the UK that still um, think, like, they think the industry is still like it was 10 years ago. I mean, it's changed a lot. I mean, five years ago, 
it was not even that far. Five years ago, I remember auditioning for Game of Thrones, auditioned for The Last Kingdom for one of the main characters of a nine episode. I didn't get them, but I was auditioning for those big shows. But the past five years, fuck all, nothing at all. It has changed completely. And I spoke to some of those casting directors and even the new, new breed of casting director. They're a lot more aggressive. They're a lot more like the American are like. They're mm-hmm. just on the board. They see when production is starting. They find out who the casting director is. They already get in touch with casting director. Say, okay, I've got this guy or that girl that you could be interested in. When you've got other agents like mine, they're like, oh, let's just wait for the breakdown on Spotlight. Yeah. Breakdown on Spotlight. There's nothing on Spotlight. It's too late. By the time you get on Spotlight, all the rules have been taken. I, I I can feel it, it's your annoyance, but your 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 passion for it that comes through. Whereas with an you know, I, I want to know what keeps you dedicated now because with a fight back when you were fighting, Jess, you, you had 12 weeks to prepare. That gave you all that time. You had one goal, one focus. If you're, if you're only getting a couple of auditions, say a year, how do you stay dedicated right now? How do you, how do you not say, do you know what? To, to hell with this acting. I'm going to go and do I've, something I've else. I've been thinking about it. Every year I say that and every year something happened and then back gets me back on the, on the horse, you know? So there's always something happening. And as I said, the good thing is um, I do stunts on the side. So actually, that that helps me a lot. Obviously, that's a double-edged sword because by being a stuntman, you're on set and you meet a lot of people. And more often than not, I'm still hand up on the camera because I've got the look, because I can do various things. So the director or the the, the stunt coordinator always managed to put me in front of the camera. So I never go unnoticed. the thing is, a lot of casting directors, if they see you doing a lot of stunts, for them, you're a stuntman, you're not an actor. So if you do too much stunts, a lot of casting directors won't even audition you. So that's that double-edged sword. At the end of the day, it shouldn't be like that. It should be, I'll go in the room, if I'm good, I'm good, if I'm not good. But no, there's that selection right from the beginning. Are you part of the, um, what do you call it? Are you uh, a select party or group? I don't know how to explain it, but you have to be, you know, there's a year or shit to it. I mean, I try telling that to Tom Cruise then, Jess, uh, for a man that likes to do his own stunts. Do we now see him as a stuntman or an actor? It's that, it, you know, you want to diversify, you want to challenge yourself, surely. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. But every actor also suffers from the same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that I, I, I might sound like I'm complaining. I'm just having a conversation with you and tell you how I feel about the industry. I mean, it's not just on TV. We all got different perceptions because we all come from different backgrounds. So obviously our perception from the acting world is going to be completely different. And it's easy for nobody. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for other actors. Um, even at the highest of highest of highest of level, all the big names we can think of, it's difficult for them too because there isn't that many good films. There's a lot of lead actors. There's a lot of lead actresses. are very competitive. If you don't work for too many years, then after your has been, if you start doing a film that goes straight to video, then you can't just audition for big movies anymore. It's very, very, very competitive. So, mm-hmm. And most of the big actors, they are put in the box as well. Oh, you, you're the action guy. Oh, you, you're the comedy guy. But even so, they make a lot of money. If they want to diversify and start doing other things, like, no, 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 you can't do that. So it's not easy for nobody at all. I'm just not saying that it's not hard for me. It's hard for everybody. So you have to find a way. And the reason I don't give up is I'm like, eventually something's going to happen. At least I can keep busy with the stunts. And also I'll really enjoy the stunts. It's a completely different ball game. There's a lot more camaraderie between you and the other stunt guy. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun as well. Yeah. Even so, it's a lot more hard work. 
So uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to come across like I'm complaining. I'm just having a frank conversation about what I think of the beat. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I know from doing stand-up comedy um, and performing for the last 13 years doing it, normally my agent, I've had a, I've had a few agents, would tell me eventually, have you thought about writing your own sitcom? <laughs> it's, it's normally the way, like, why don't you go and write something and then you can star in it? But, you know, it, that seems like it's... Um, uh, of avoiding the challenge of, of trying to get picked in something you, you want to do. Um, otherwise, I would become a writer, not not a performer. So, so is, there, is there anything else that you are doing, Jess, in terms of I see that you're coaching to, to pass your time? Well, you're saying, I mean, if you think of it, in recent years, the majority of people that kind of came out of nowhere, they don't want to actually wrote their own TV show or pilot or whatever. So in a, in a way, if you are capable of writing, that's the way to go. Write your own thing and knock at the door of Netflix and BBC, start just shooting a pilot. That's the way to go if you can write it. I mean, do you really believe Ricky Gervais would have been war renewed if he didn't wrote The Office? No. Mm. He had to create his own opportunity and is one out of many. So I think if you are capable of writing, that's actually the way to go. Uh, I'm incapable of doing that, first of all. And also, uh, now it's has changed a lot. I mean, what the BBC perhaps would picked up five, six, seven, ten years ago, now it's changed. The politics has changed. Uh, the, the films have become, have become very political as well. So it's not just who come to audition, but the sex of the person, the, 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 where the person come from, the nationality. I mean, all those things are coming to play now. So... Uh, uh, even if you wanted to write your own sitcom, you have to take all of this in consideration. Well, as I said, I do stunts. I train also for becoming a, a better stuntman, so I keep training my martial art. It's very frustrating. But as I said, uh, last year, I worked for the best part of six months. So I was not really out of work for a long time. I worked on Fast and Furious for four months, and then I had a little time off, and then I worked on and off on James Bond. So... Uh, you know, I, I work most of the time. This year has been difficult. I was supposed to work on Batman, but obviously uh, when a coronavirus hit, uh, I was just sidelined. So I've heard that they're going back on set and they start shooting again very soon. So hopefully I'll be on that. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're, you're always ready to be called upon and that sort of dedication that, that, that you have. It's interesting that I look at your Instagram and um, the current state of affairs for people in the world is the first question I, I would normally do is look at your Wikipedia, look at your history. And then I think, how many followers does Jess have? That seems to be the, the general way people think now. And looking at the fact that you have so many followers, do you, do you think that that helps you? That gives you another platform, as you said earlier, to, to perform and, to, and to, to share with people? No, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. If uh, I don't have a Twitter account, and if I didn't really need Instagram to promote myself and at least to be over there, because what I noticed is now a lot of, especially American, uh, when you tell them, oh, do you know about this guy? They go online, they check you out. So I've saw five coordinator going on Instagram and checking people out. So you need to be on it. But if it wasn't for that, I won't be on it because everybody is a superstar on Instagram. Everybody is a celebrity. Everybody is an athlete. Everybody's an actor. Everybody's exceptional to the point that it doesn't mean anything anymore. Now, before when I used to introduce myself to someone, I send them a link of documentary that was made about me, maybe a couple of fights or a couple of pictures. But not everybody's mm. got that. Everybody got pictures. I see guys that, because now I do commentary for, for MMA event, 
And I see a guy, they're doing their first or second fight. And they already go camera crew following them around. They're wearing a suit. They're coping Conor McGregor. They're doing all those highlight reels. And you look at Instagram, and they look like superstar, like Conor McGregor 2.0. But realistically, they got two fights. One win, one loss. So, yeah. you know, you can't really believe what you see. you got people who, who buy, who's rich kids, who buy hundreds of thousands of fake followers. So for me, none of this meant anything. And... I find it, I don't think it means that much to a lot of people. I, I always find it uncomfortable when say, people say, oh, so this person got so many uh, followers on Instagram, so many likes, so many reads. Who gives a shit? That don't mean nothing at all. I, I agree with you on that. It, it just seems that the world is based on that. It's like, uh, you know, if you didn't have an Instagram, Jess, people would, would be like, oh, yeah, I've seen some of his fights on YouTube. I've seen some of his work and like Anna, uh, you know, you appeared in that uh, with Luke Besson. And, and you think, but if he doesn't have an Instagram and I can't see the work that he's putting out, then he doesn't exist. And, and I think that's maybe what people find very frustrating about social media is it really counts. For, it, it only highlights what you want it to highlight, but it doesn't explain anything about the journey you've been on. No, absolutely. I mean, as I say, I don't know how many people that I see on Instagram and it says, I'm an actor. I remember on Facebook, sometimes you do out of group when they're doing audition, open audition and ask people to send the material. And you know, as an actor, once people ask that, you send them your CV and you just attach your tutorial, maybe with a picture. So, you know, if, even if you're a beginner actor, you know, that's what you should do. Yeah. And when I see those people doing those open, uh, open casting, you will literally have hundreds of people and what they do, they just post the Instagram account. Not even an introduction, not even a CV, not even a couple of lines saying, I worked on this, I worked on that, this is my charade. No, I'm an actor, check my Instagram. People really think it's that easy. So as I said, uh, I do have an Instagram and I do like, it makes it easier for me to keep in touch with people. And as I said, sometimes you have up and coming directors that get in touch with me. Oh, I've heard of you. Uh, I find you on Instagram. I see a couple of pictures. I check your showreel. Um, let's get in touch, let's look, maybe I'm going to produce this short film or this low-budget movie. So it does help me, uh, but I wish I was big enough so I didn't have it because yeah. there's a part of it I don't really like. There's a part of it that is a complete... I know even grow adult, people who's in the 50s and 60s that get depressed because of Instagram because they believe that they could walk or go a better life than them. I'm like, no, they don't have a better life. They just highlight the best moment of their life. They don't have a better life than you. I mean, it's quite obvious from the recent study that kids are becoming more and more depressed because of social media. I, I, two things I, I wouldn't have known about you from the Instagram. A, uh, that, uh, that I am jealous of you, and I'm going to confess this now, Jess. Uh, you have your own dog. Uh, myself and my girlfriend can't get our own dog yet because we're in rented property. But so, you know, for that, you know, I, I, I applaud. You've got your own dog. Uh, <laughs> so um, man's best friend, as they say. Yeah, uh, her name is Dolly. Uh, she's a rescue, actually. I had her for just close to two years now. Uh, I always had Staffy. I mean, I had Staffy before for 17 years, which is a very long time for a Staffy. But obviously, because I exercise, I always exercise with my dogs so that I keep them in good shape. And uh, yeah, Dolly, she's a rescue. She's a nutcase, though. She's full of energy. She was abused by her former owner. She was a, a false bred. Um, so, but yeah, no, she's great. Uh, and uh, I do follow actually quite a lot of uh, dogs on Instagram. I'm uh, one of those very big uh, dog lovers. So yeah. I think a lot of people should just uh, get with you. Uh, so understanding where you're at with your acting and 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 still training to be to be ready to go. Uh, what what made you want to get into UFC? If we we go back 
uh, in time a little bit. What was your inspiration for, for getting into UFC? Well, I never really wanted to be in the UFC the same way I never really wanted to become a professional fighter. It just happened by accident. Um, I started martial arts from a very young age. At eight, I started doing judo. I did karate at 10. I started Thai boxing at 14. That's when I really started training very seriously. And um, I really wanted to test my skill as a martial artist more than anything. I wanted to see if what I do was efficient. Uh, I didn't really want to become a champion. I didn't have any champion around me. I didn't even know what it required to be a champion. Uh, so uh, I started fighting for the reason that I wanted to, three, four, five, with success. And then I realized that's a good way for me to express myself. Now, uh, my background, basically, my dad was a very bad man. He was an alcoholic. He used to beat me up a lot to the point that I broke his nose many times, various fractures. And... Um, so uh, it was not fun when I was a kid. I used to beat up my mom as well. So it was very tough. And then we moved when I was 14 and I was homeless for a little while. Then we lived in a special care center. And then we just uh, moved in a very rough neighborhood when I would fight every day. So anyway, uh, and when I was a kid also, when my dad used to beat me up, I used to be very introvert. I used to be very timid. So I used to get bullied at school. So um, I was very introvert. And when I was 14, obviously I moved from my dad. Uh, I started working in a video store. And I started watching a lot of videos because I was working there for free um, just for the sake of getting a job. That's a different story altogether. But anyway, and I watched a lot of movies and I was very passionate about movie. And that was my first love. I wanted to become an actor. I wanted to work in movies. But obviously people like me don't work in movies. So I kind of like gave up on that. And when I started fighting initially to test my skill, but eventually also I realized there was an opportunity for me to express myself, mm -hmm. express myself artistically. If I could have done theater, I would have probably never become a fighter. But because I could do theater, for me, there was a way to have a play. You know, I used to do those crazy kicks and um, being very exciting, being very emotional for, in a fight. And it was a, a way, literally, for me to express myself. And I think that's the only reason I kept fighting and fighting, because for me, it was a way to do a show. I had an audience in front of me, and I was having a good time. Based off from what you just said, I, I have lots of questions about that. So it's a kind of underprivileged background in many respects you you were from is that why you felt like you couldn't straight away be an actor you didn't fit a certain type that you had to be you don't even know i mean listen uh, you know, uh, there's a different time as well we're talking that's the 80s you know in the 80s it's not like now when you got so many agencies and stuff like that so no you couldn't think i remember even talking to uh, at school to one of the teacher i said listen i'd like to get uh, into the movie business, what do you think? And um, they say, yeah, I think the best we can offer you is to be um, a projectionist. You know, like the guy that walks in the cinema and just put wow. it So, you know, that's it. They could never say, oh yeah, well, perhaps you should do theater and stuff like that. No, 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 no. They say, yeah, maybe you should become a projectionist. So, you know, if you come from the background I come from, you know, people see you as just being that. So yeah, I didn't think I could. And I didn't know it, Sam. I didn't know any actor. I didn't know how really how it worked. And I really changed my mind after having such a lengthy career and successful career. I realized, hold on a minute, I've done all of that without, without really wanting to do it. So now that I really want to be an actor, I guess I can do it. And that's when I went to drama school. It just seems very odd, Jess, that, and I know you're saying it's from the 80s, that that period of time, but you, you become typecast, ironically, like uh, actors become typecast because people said what you can and can't do. D did you take that to heart or did you 
find an edge to yourself where you wanted to prove people wrong? Or did you follow and think, oh, well, this is this is the sum of my worth. I, oh, I have to go into fighting because that that fits that stereotypical background. No, but you don't know any better. You know, obviously by that time I was 14. So, uh, you know, we moved from, we lived, in, we, we slept in a church for a while and then we moved in a special care center with moms. And by then I was living in a very rough area, like a cancer estate. So um, you don't know any better. You're just a poor guy amongst many poor people. And you don't know any better. You know, we not treated the same way that normal people. I remember when I used to go to the center of town just to walk around on the weekend, maybe up some girl or stuff like that. You can see the way people behave towards you. You can see the police just checking you out. You can see all those things. So you're kind of an outcast, you know. I mean, simple things like I remember that's what I said to people. Every time now I sit in the terrace and I'm having a coffee somewhere, I feel like I'm rich because I remember when I was a teenager, I used to be look at those kids sitting in a terrace having a, a, a coke in the summer or maybe a hot chocolate in a in the winter. It was like that's rich kids stuff. We can't do that. We can't afford a coke in a bar. This is rich mm. people and stuff. So you don't know any better. So no, I didn't really take it out hard. I didn't feel the need to prove anything. I also, I really felt like, listen, with my background and where I come from, there's nothing for me in this country. And that's when I decided I need to go somewhere else. And I watched so many of those American movies. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take all my stuff, my backpack, and I'm going to move to America. And life's going to be better up there. And that's when I started thinking about traveling. You, you really followed that uh, American dream then, Jess. You, you decided this was the place for me. I, I suppose because when you watched those films, it made you happy. It brought joy to your life. So why not go to the place that brings you joy? Absolutely. I mean, and listen, I'm 14, 15. I'm watching Van Damme. I'm watching Stallone. I'm watching Schwarzenegger. And they all got the same story. They all struggled. They all went to America. They all made it. And I was like, yeah, fuck you. You know what I mean? instead of cleaning the street here, I might as well clean the street in America and think maybe I'm going to get somewhere. So uh, when I was 20 years old, I took my backpack, a few a few quid, and I, I went to America. And I done all bunch of shitty jobs. I mean, literally, literally shitty jobs. I remember that one time, and I think that was probably the worst. Um, this guy used to pick me up every day and make me do different jobs every day. So one day I would work as a kitchen porter. The following day, I would just clean up a pool. Then I would work in the garden. I would do some gardening. And then sometimes we do security. And I hated doing security. I mean, I was 20 years old. I was a small guy. It was very nerve-wracking. You know, in a country, we don't speak the language. And people in America look very intimidating. And obviously, because I didn't have any paper, I would work in the most fucked up place. I remember working in those Mexican bar when every single customer looked like Danny Trejo, literally. So it was pretty tough. Anyway. One time he sent me to this club uh, to work as a security, and it was like a black club in a black neighborhood. So the guy saw me coming, he was like, what the fuck do you want me to do with this guy? And I couldn't put him at the door. So he put me in the back, and I was just picking up the dirty glasses and washed them in the back and stuff. At one point, he called me, he said, hey, come here, I need you. So he took me to the toilet, and one of the toilet was completely full. It was full of shit and vomit and everything. And he yeah. said, pick that up. I'm like, uh, I don't have any gloves. He was like, I don't give a shit. So after you do with my bare hand, no. Try to empty some toilet full of shit and vomit when everybody around you is looking at you. So, but in my head, I was like, Van Damme have to go through this. I don't know that to go through this. So I got to go through this. So I, I got to eat shit to get what I want. Yeah. So, you know, that was my motivation, the movies. If it wasn't for the movies, I would have said, you know what, fuck that. But I didn't know any better. For me, all the stars I look up to at the time, they had to go through the same thing. So I was like, eh, we got to do this what we got to do. 
you got to do what you got to do. That that was the same journey that you're going to have to go on. Well, what was it like going to America? Where did you land first? And and you spoke little English or or a, a lot? I mean, what was your level of really? Well, I left school. I was about fourteen, fifteen, so I didn't know any. Uh, I didn't know any English at all. I could barely write or read French, so forget about English. No, the first time I went to America was in 1993. Uh, I was working in a sports store, and one of the ladies who worked in there had an old boyfriend who was doing karate and moved in the States. And she said, you should get in touch with him and because you know, I know you want to live in America. So I started corresponding with him. Back in the days, there were no emails. So you have to write each other letters and exchange pictures. And the guy said, hey, hold on. If you want to come to America, you can come to my house on vacation for a few weeks if that interests. So I put a lot of money on the side, and I went to Houston, Texas. Wow. Uh, when I arrived, showed me the States and how it works and stuff. And I was like, fuck, I want to move there. And I remember we went to this uh, martial arts store and they had a poster and it was like Southeast Kickboxing Championship. And I was like, oh, can I do that? It was like, do you want to watch it? I'm like, no, I want to do it. And it was like the following weekend. So he called the promoter and said, I've got a guy there who wants to find a new promotion. And the guy was like, yeah, sure, why not? I fought in promotion and won. But he was very excited and the guy was like, okay, I like what you do. And I was very, you know, at the time, you didn't see that many people who were doing like spinny kick and 360 kick and stuff like that. So I got a crowd on their feet. So the guy said, okay, maybe I got something there. So the guy said to me, listen, if you put a few bucks on the side, you come back here and we all put a martial art academy together. I was like, fuck, that's a dream come true. So I went back in uh, France, put money on the side as much as I could in one year and went back in the States. So I went back to Houston. But by that time, he was going through a divorce with his wife. I don't think he really wanted to open an academy anymore. It kind of left me on the side. So it was a pretty tough one year for me. So I didn't feel like I wasn't going to go anywhere. But because I was working mainly for Mexican company and things like that, because I didn't have any uh, paper, I couldn't learn English. I only learned English when I moved here in the UK. So I stayed there for about one year from 95 to 96. In 96, I moved back here in the UK. I arrived here in February, which was horrible. Because February here is probably the worst month of the year. It's dark, it's depressing, it's cold, it's wet. And I just came back from Houston where I spent Christmas in my T-shirt. So <laughs> I came here and I worked as a kitchen porter on Piccadilly Street in a restaurant. And uh, from there on, I started in English. Everybody was speaking English. Then. Obviously, in the back uh, with me, they were some Nigerian guy, but he could speak English. So I started chatting to them, reading newspaper, um, watching cartoons on TV. And then very quickly, there were a progression. As soon as I started talking a little bit of English, um, the manager said to me, hey, why don't you walk behind the bar so that you can make a few tips? Because at the time, I was getting paid three pounds an hour. I was making 25 quid a day. So I said, yeah, why not? So I would do double shift. I would do kitchen porter in the morning for 25 quid. And then I would come back in the evening and walk behind the bar for four or five hours and make a few tips. So there you go. It just seems... Um... The, the way you you tell it, it's like you're you're writing a you're you're reading out a movie script. <laughs> do you know what I mean, Jess? Do, do you ever see that with you, with your life? It just seems like all of these setbacks and then progression. A little bit of a setback, then a bit of progression. How did you remain confident that that dream you had would would come to fruition? I didn't know. I didn't know any better. You have to keep going forward, isn't it? I mean. The people, I see so many people now on social media just whinging, crying, complaining. I'm like, listen, you're not doing anything for yourself here. You're giving fire to other people that are uh, already um, privileged. And they're going to use your suffering for themselves, but they're not doing anything for you. In two years' time, you'll still be the same whinging bitch. So you get to keep moving. You know? If you're just uh, drowning, 
Either you scream or you just try to find somewhere to swim. I mean, either way, you're going to suffer. But at least one, you might have an option. And I didn't know any better. You know, um, for me, I started my first job. That's what I was saying to someone recently. I had my first job. I was 12 years old. I was working at a goat farm. I remember going to the farm and say, hi, I just want to work. And they say, okay, but we don't need nobody else. Listen, I don't want to get paid. I just want to work, which must have been hard for these people. They were like, okay. And they give me a job. I started working in a good farm. I think I worked there for about six months. And I started thinking, now, why did I want to work so much? So it could be a different thing. Maybe I was, I saw one of those American sitcoms at the time when every teenager had a, a Sunday job uh, delivering the newspaper or whatever, too, so they can buy a bike. Maybe that was that. Or maybe I didn't want to spend too much time at home because uh, my father was being around and maybe I didn't want to get beat up. But I think the real reason is I want to be, I, want, I wanted to feel like I was worth something. Just the fact that I was doing a job, that I was actually doing something in my own hand. And at the end of the day, we said to me, good job. That made me happy. And I think that always stays with me. And I think that's what helped me the most. That's why I never really looked back. I never felt bad for anything. I never see sort of any job being uh, beneath me. Um, and I kept my motivation. It's because as long as I'm working, as long as every day I'm doing something, I feel like I'm worth something, I'm going forward. Yeah, you, you, you find the value in yourself, uh, which, is, which is what many people struggle to do. But it, it, it sounds like that. Whenever you felt like you had a setback, how did you deal with that word that everyone uses? How did you deal with the failure? Or did it ever feel like failure to you? Or did it feel like this is another step on the ladder which I have to, have to climb? Uh, for me, as I said, as soon as I came in the UK, that's why I think I fall in love with this country because... Uh, I had the opportunity to move in different places. I lived in Japan for one year. I lived in Hong Kong for one year. I was on and off in America and California when I was uh, fighting for the UFC. And I had many opportunities to move overseas. But for me, my home is the UK because here I think I had so many opportunities. This country literally changed my life. Changed my life. When I came in the UK, I thought it was an America 2.0, an American light, if you will. Where yeah. maybe they won't as many big opportunities in America, but they were much much touchable, if you will. Like I said, I, I work as a kitchen porter, but very quickly, within six months, I was already working in a bar and making a little bit more money. I know for a lot of people that I've seen much, but for me, it was a lot. And then after that, I remember I was training with a Kung Fu company uh, in circus space. And this Kung Fu company uh, was doing martial arts, started doing exhibition. And we'd start doing martial arts demonstration around the country. And I would make a few quid from that. And I remember at one point, they got a movie job in a film called Nutcracker, which was the first IMAX movie. And I worked on a film with them. You see, those opportunities keep going my way because I keep working hard. And I was working in this gym called Jubilee Hall in Covent Garden. At one time, the manager came to me, was an Australian guy, said, hey, I like the way you train. Would you like to be a PT? I was like, Hi, what's a PT? How does that work? He said, well, listen, you got to do those qualifications. You got to do this, that, and the other. At the time, I didn't have the money all the time. But as I said, later on, I got that movie part. And that movie part gave me enough money to get my qualification. And after having those qualifications, I started working in the gym. And then, mm. all of a sudden, now I was making a bit more money. Now, after a while, the gym said, if you start doing a few classes, if you start doing well, maybe we'll allow you to PT. What happened? Six months later, they allowed me to PT. And now, instead of doing £25 a day, I was making £25 an hour. So in three years, there was a huge improvement in my life. I guess the the mantra from you, Jess, is is to keep moving, keep moving, keep doing, and and things will come your way. Do you believe in fate? 
I don't know if I believe in faith. I, I think if you do good thing, good thing will happen to you. If you do bad thing, eventually bad thing will happen to you. I believe in karma, I suppose. But uh, that's what now has been so hard. And that's why it's frustrating with the movie business because you can see how my life has been from fighting to my life in general. It's about pushing forward, being proactive, pushing forward, being proactive. But in a movie business, it doesn't work like that. It's very hard to be proactive and move forward. you got to wait for someone to call you. you got to wait for someone to say, eh, maybe. So it's, that's, that part of frustrates me more than anything. So that's why I like doing stunts because at least in stunts, and again, you're being very much proactive. And the past month, I've been considering why don't I just give up the whole acting business and just become a full-time stuntman and just go on a register. I've literally been thinking about that because of a lack of proactivity. So I suppose if I could write, maybe I'd be more proactive and start writing my own stuff, but um, it's difficult. So um, yeah, I think that's what's been the most frustrating in, in recent months now with the COVID-19 hitting us and me being stuck at home and not being able to do anything. It's not even the money, but not being able to go to work and being proactive. It's just, and you can barely walk out. You can only do a few things at home. So you're not even progressing in your own body. So it's been very tough for me. Yeah, I guess mentally for you, you're not moving forward at the moment. That, that's what it feels like physically, mentally. Um, maybe, maybe writing the book, the story uh, of Jess uh, would, be the, would be the way forward at the moment. Yeah, a lot of people have been talking about, about it, I mean, for years now, in fact, because I used to have a blog in France back in the early 2000s, and people would follow it, especially when I moved to Japan, I would keep picking people in touch with what's going on in Japan, because I had a lot of stories happening in Japan. I remember moving there, living in this Gaojin house. Gaojin is foreigner. In this house, we were 21 people in one house. They only had two bathrooms, one shower. It was not even a real shower. It was like a, those showers you have on the building site, those plastic ones. So 21 mm -hmm. people sharing one shower. Uh, I remember the first night arriving in, 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 uh, in Tokyo and uh, I met up with an American guy I got in touch with online there and I missed my train and I ended up in an S&M party. I mean, I've got a shitload of stuff heard story about Japan. But, <laughs> well, that sounds like, uh, that would be that whole chapter in itself. Um, yeah. but, but anyway, I was, I was, I was saying, yeah, is I, I was putting all those stories online and then start talking a bit more about myself. Then later on, I signed UFC and a lot of people would follow that blog. And a lot of people during those years say, you should write a book, you should write a book, you should write a book. But the thing is, I've tried, and I think I've tried for the past two years now, and I go on it and I stop and I go, because it's very hard to talk about myself. I find it so, you know, the majority of actors that do uh, the biography, they got someone actually writing. You know, it's quite obvious when you read it. You see someone like Michael Caine, who's got, I don't know how many movies, he must have hundreds of stories and anecdotes. But you read his biography, it's really basic, it's about his life, but there's not so much to it. So you know it's some, someone else who wrote it. And I can understand why. It's very boring to just talk about your stuff constantly. I've done this. I've done that. I'm so, oh, it's boring. So maybe if I find someone who I can write it with, maybe I'll find funny easier. But just write about myself. Oh, man, it's horrible. I mean, a lot of those people on Instagram would love it. But me, I just hate it. <laughs> it's so true, Jess. It's so true. Um, I, I have a couple more questions. And I, I really appreciate your, your time, Jess, to, to, to find out that's what the podcast is about, finding out what makes you tick. And I, I think I'm definitely getting uh, a better picture of, of what drives you. You mentioned about moving away from France. You are where you are now. You've been on this journey. You've kept moving forward. With your, your family, I'm going down the line here where uh, we're a product of our environment. And um, you talk about your background but there's so much more to you, but that, that was your starting block. 
in terms of being reflective on on your upbringing, your childhood, have you found a resolution to, to the to the things you experienced? I don't think you realize at the time how much of an impact he has on you. Uh, obviously, I was living, you know, tough stuff. You know, getting punched like proper fist in my face when I was a child and stuff like that. But as I said, at the time, I didn't feel like I was. Um, uh, how do you call it? Um, oh, I lost my word. Uh, I didn't know any better. You know, of course my dad was that, but a lot of other dads were violent. A lot of people in the neighborhood were violent. So I didn't know any better. Um, I guess you I didn't feel myself, any different. I guess you didn't feel no, any different. I didn't see myself being a victim. Don't get me wrong. I didn't like to get beat up. But I, I, as I said, and I think I always had this mentality of looking forward and keep fighting and looking forward and keep fighting. But eventually, when you get older, you realize that has an impact. Obviously, I haven't spoke to my father since I'm 14 years old. I'm keeping in touch with my mom. And I've got four sisters that I get on very well with. But I barely talk to them. I might talk to my mom twice a year, three times a year. I barely talk to my sisters. And I love all of them. It's just that my mind completely detached itself from mm. that. I don't have many friends in my life. I sound like a sad fucker. But, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys. I think because I emotionally got very detached from a very young age, I learned to be my own self. And I'm just satisfied just being me. And I think I only get my satisfaction by going forward and fight forward. That's what I, I live through. You walk out, Jess, to 20,000 people in UFC and you feel that energy. I imagine it's like a wave that hits you, that celebration, that, that cheering you on. That, that must have been, you know, like not everyone gets to experience that. That must have really made you feel that kind of love and adulation towards you. Well, after the fight, when you win, yes. But when you get in there, initially you shit yourself. But, uh, you know, each and every fight is different. I remember going into some fight. I remember my first UFC fight. I was not nervous at all. I really enjoyed the whole process. But fight number three is completely different. Now you got a lot more pressure on your shoulder. You're fighting a top 10 in the world. There's a lot of expectation. If you don't win, this is going to happen. If you don't win, that's going to happen. You've got manager. You've got this, that. You know, it's not about having fun anymore. But I remember my first UFC fight. Yeah, it's fun. From the beginning, you arrived there. Even on the way in, I was having a lot of fun. I could see my opponent was not used to this big event. And for him, I could feel like he had a lot of pressure. Even so, everybody expected, except, um, expected him to beat me up. So, you know, but me, I had a great time. But as I say, each and every fight is different. Usually when you've got a lot of fun, it's that release at the end when you got that submission, you got that knockout, you got that victory. You got all the energy that explodes outside. You got all those fans screaming your name, and it feels fantastic. It's like I never took drugs, but I'm suppose it's like having a big of cocaine. You feel like yeah, but that only lasts for a few hours. After that, when you go to bed, you go back to normal. And the following day is just another day. Or of course, you might find a few guys at the gym or people that you know say, "Hey, good fight," but that all huge post of energy is gone. So all this just for that, just for a few minutes, not even an hour. And then back to square one again. Monday, you go back to work. And then Tuesday, you manage to call you and say, okay, that's the next fight. You know what I mean? So it's just, yeah, it was great. But as I said, it's, it's, it's a lot of hard, a lot of effort. It's a lot you have to, if you pay for what you get from, you know, you don't get much from fighting. You get this big emotional moment after the fight but at the end of it you know it's, it's a lot it's a lot of hard work a lot of suffering just not very much but when you come home what, what do you come home to i know you have dolly your dog do you do you have a wife a family what's what's the no i don't have i don't have kids no i've got a wife i've got my dog i don't have kids i think the um 
the fact of what I went through as a child kind of like put a break on that. I think I already had a problem with having kids. And I think I waited too long now. But um, I think the fact that I had such a tough childhood kind of like made it hard for me to have children. Mm. But anyway, no, I've got a life, a wife that I love dearly. Uh, I've got my dog. Um, yeah, I, I think I get the most pressure from working, from being proactive, from creating something, from doing something. Um, even if tomorrow you say to me, okay, come in my back garden and you've got to um, you know, take care of the grass, and I've got to do that during the afternoon. When I'm finished, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to feel, ah, oh, I feel so great. You know, that's, that's, that's weird. But I feel the, I love the, the, the feeling of achievement, you know. And, and as I said, once again, that's why the, the, the acting business is so frustrating. As I said, once again, I'm not saying it's any harder for me than it is for anybody else. But if you think about the way I am and the fact that I want to be very proactive and do stuff and not being able to do anything, how frustrating it is. You think, what am I putting all my energy in this when really nothing happened when I could put my energy somewhere else? But there's nothing else really that just rocked my boat at the moment. Well, uh, thank you so much, Jess, uh, for being a guest on my podcast today, for giving me your time and, and sharing with me your incredible story. Listen, I, I wish you all the best and uh, whatever you've got planned for the future, I, I very much look forward to reading that book if you can ever get a ghostwriter on board. Uh, and to everybody listening right now, I, I'm sure you join me by applauding his approach to his early life and how he didn't let that hold him back from his dreams. Plus, I love that mantra that he mentioned, uh, as long as I'm working, doing something every day, I'm worth something. Um, I'm going forward. And that's a great way of looking at life. And I hope that uh, inspired you maybe. And if that has inspired you, go and check out Jess's IMDb profile. Listen, no doubt you'll recognize him in, in several of those films. I, I know for a fact I've gone back and watched a couple now uh, to um, to say, oh, there he is. Um, you know, that sort of general thing that we do when we're watching films. Also, uh, as much as we don't like Instagram at times, check out his work uh, just by going to his Instagram page, Jess Liaudin. Uh, that's L-I-A-U-D-I-N. Um, a summary uh, on the podcast, I've, I've put a link there so you can go and check it out. Um, also, uh, stay up to date with everything with myself. I've put my details on there as well. So if you do get time, please leave a comment for me on Twitter, Instagram as well. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe. Well, that's it for this week. Um, I'll see you in two weeks time with a brand new guest. And thank you so much for tuning in and listening.